Welcome to Energy Radio. Today we are uh, listening to episode 46. My name is uh, Matt Lensink and I'm excited for uh, this conversation. We're talking about a, a topic that uh, is near and dear to my heart and, and something that I grew up with. But uh, before we get to that, uh, I want to welcome my co-host on the Energy Radio podcast, uh, Lisa Barber. Lisa, welcome. Good morning, Matt. How are you today, Lisa? I'm good. Sun is shining. Couldn't be happier. <laughs> it's Friday, too. <laughs> uh, today, we're joined by uh, Shauna Pahal, uh, who is the Senior Managing Director with Manitoba Hydro. Shauna, welcome to Energy Radio. Thank you very much. How are things uh, in, in Manitoba today? Things are beautiful. The sun is shining. And guess what? It's also Friday in Manitoba. Beautiful. <laughs> good. Love it. it. Isn't Confederation a beautiful thing that we're all... Uh, it is a beautiful today? thing. I yeah. think our clocks are different, but the uh, day is the same. There we go. There we go. Well, I'm excited. I, uh, As I mentioned to Lisa as we were preparing, um, I, my father cut his teeth in hydropower, which is going to be a big topic uh, for us. And every family vacation uh, always included a trip to the local hydroelectric facility. Uh, and even awesome. my, my parents' honeymoon, which was a trip from Hamilton, Ontario to Ottawa, Ontario, uh, by car involved a couple stops at hydroelectric facilities. So uh, this would be the one thing that I would be like to do, like to do if I wasn't doing uh, stuff at CEM. So Shauna, I want to hear from you kind of for our listeners, what, uh, what your career has been made up of, the different things you've done uh, with Manitoba Hydro. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll go from there, but really want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself and, and talk about uh, your career and your space in this industry. Well, thanks very much. And thanks for inviting me, uh, Matt and Lisa. Um, yeah, so I've had an opportunity, I can't believe, but it's uh, 37 years this year that I've been in the industry. Uh, right out of university, I started as a chemist at Manitoba Hydro, and um, I just had the opportunity to try different things because it's a large company and uh, had opportunities to pursue education while I was still working at Manitoba Hydro. And so I moved into all different areas, into safety and occupational health, and then into quality control, and then into improvement initiatives, and an executive assistant. And um, then I looked after strategic planning and business planning for a number of years. And then I looked after the um, pre-construction phase of our large dams. Mm -hmm. uh, so worked on the Kiask with Squatum projects for about 12 years. Um, mm -hmm. and during that time, though, concurrently, I had the opportunity to do some international assignments with our international arm, Manitoba Hydro International, and um, got to work overseas. And then I got the bug to do international consulting and work with utilities around the world. So I've, you know, I had the opportunity. I think I've worked with about 40 different utilities around the world now, and I've worked in about 20 different countries. And uh, yeah, and I, I just have a passion for that now, um, the overseas work and uh, working, um, working with uh, countries that, that are just in the process of uh, developing their, uh, you know, their energy infrastructure. So that's my story. And I'm now at, um, I was, my last job was the Vice President of Finance and Strategy at Manitoba Hydro. And now I'm back at Manitoba Hydro International full-time as a Senior Managing Director and uh, and loving it. Wow, very cool. Thank yeah. you. 
Well, let's let's maybe start kind of at the Manitoba Hydro level, and then we'll kind of narrow in. Talk to us a bit about. I think it's in some ways there's a lot of unique and exciting things about Manitoba Hydro. Talk to us about um, the utility and the business, and what you're in, and how you guys operate, and then we'll talk about uh, uh, your your area of the company. Well, for sure. So Manitoba Hydro has been around for like a hundred plus years in some form or another in the province, right? Um, so we have some pretty old generating stations in the province. Um, and Manitoba Hydro is like 97% hydro. So we're blessed with a province that has an elevation that water runs from one end to the other with a nice uh, decline. And so we get to um, build hydro generating stations um, that can generate a lot of renewable hydropower energy. And so uh, we're 90, yeah, 97% hydro. And that's sort of been our, our thing for forever. We have a little bit of wind and a little bit of solar. Um, but because we live in what they call the hydropower province, um, we don't have a ton of other renewables in our mix. It's primarily hydropower. And that's been the... Um, the story of Manitoba Hydro and and um, under our new leadership um, we're taking a look at some more strategic planning and um, looking at strategies going forward for the next 20 years in the energy landscape and how it's changing and how we will need to pivot and how we will fit in there um, being a primarily hydro utility and how that works in the whole mix. So um, we also have a significant, um, we merged with the gas company in Manitoba a number of years ago. So we have a large gas uh, component to our energy company. And um, so what's interesting there that people I think don't realize is that um, we have more energy from our gas uh, side of our business to, for heating um, than our electrical. And so um, one of the challenges in our industry and in our province will be to try and slowly move from gas to more renewables like hydropower and other renewables. Um, but that's a heavy lift given the amount of gas we use to heat our homes. So yeah. that's sort of the state we're in right now. And Manitoba Hydro is uh, vertically integrated, which is not too common these days anymore. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, that's a hilarious comment, Matt, because, you know, because I've worked all over the world, one of the things I spent in the 90s was I was working um, in India quite a bit in all the different states in India and working on projects for the World Bank um, or USAID or various uh, development organizations that were funding projects. And the projects were to unbundle uh, the utilities, so to take them from being vertically integrated to unbundled, right? And then there were some mm. discussions of selling certain pieces off or, you know, all the various discussions that take place when you unbundle. And what's fascinating is then about four or five years ago, I got asked to come back to put them back together. <laughs> and I said to my wife, that is a sign that I should retire because I, they hired me to take them apart. Now they want to hire me to come and put them back together. Clearly, I've been working too long. <laughs> so it's, it's quite interesting in, in terms of the global sort of picture of that, the vertically integration, you know, with, with getting all the synergies and then people looking at it as a business model, unbundling it. And then now putting it back together, and I think it depends where your where your perspective is on um, the whole industry, right? In terms of is energy a uh, human right, and mm. do you mm. um, do you or or do you try and optimize it and maximize it to make the most money, or do you 
create the synergies and dependability and reliability because it's a human right and everyone gets electricity. So I think it's a, it's probably four or five podcasts worth of debate about <laughs> um, vertically integrating versus not vertically integrating and unbundling and what the impacts and puts and takes are of that. So, mm-hmm. Sean, true. are you still working internationally, or are you are you focused just on Manitoba now? What how does that how's that working? Uh, no, we still have some international pro, uh, projects on the go. Um, we right now we're in um, in a situation in Manitoba where the current government has um, uh, suggested uh, that we um, and our board and current leadership that um, we need to unwind our our international consulting on our utility services side of the business. So the rest of the businesses. Um, we'll still be running and we'll still be working overseas. But some of the management contracts that we've been doing where we put management teams together and go into countries to run their utilities for them, um, we're going to stop uh, doing that. We're just going to finish the contracts we have. Um, so the answer is yes and no. On one side of the business, we're going to wind that down. And on the other side of the business, we're going to keep going. Interesting. Is that a unique uh, business model or service to Manitoba Hydro or, or maybe like that you're providing so much externally focused um, kind of services or projects? Is that somewhat unique to Manitoba Hydro? It is. You know, like Saskatchewan has um, uh, also has an international arm. Quebec Hydro had an international arm. They closed it and they've reopened it. Um, you know, it's kind of gone through cycles as well, which is another indication of I've been working too long because I've watched these utilities you know, <laughs> come and go with their international arms. Um, and they people use them for different reasons. Like Quebec Hydro, for example, my understanding is they reinitiated that international arm is because they wanted to keep their people who work on projects employed in mm. between projects so they didn't lose the skill sets. So then they would send them overseas and work on other projects, but then when they wanted to build again or develop, they would have their their base and their skill set. Um, you know, in Manitoba, the international arm got started so that it was sort of a launching point for other energy companies in Manitoba to start working internationally with the backing of a crown corporation. Um, so, you know, there's all different reasons companies have utilized an international group. Cool. Mm. I'm sure lots of our, our, our listeners, Sean, I don't necessarily know how a hydroelectric facility works. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit for us? Well, yeah, there's um, it's primarily taking uh, mechanical or kinetic mechanical energy, water energy, um, and running it through a turbine and uh, turning it into electrical energy. So you try and create a, usually you build a dam. Um, there's other configurations that you can use but generally you build a dam and then the water on one side is higher than the water on the other side the water falls through a, what they call a pen stock or a yeah, long tube into the bottom of the dam pushes a turbine that spins it around those of you who can't see me I'm using my finger to go around and around so it spins the turbine <laughs> around and there's a shaft on the top of the turbine that spins and that turns the uh uh, creates energy inside the generator, which then gets moved on to transmission lines in different configurations and then eventually into your home. So um, there's other configurations. You don't necessarily have to 
uh, pool water and build reservoirs, which is one of the issues with the environmental uh, issues that come along with hydropower. So, you know, there's one of the river plants or pumped hydro storage or, you know, other different kinds of configurations. But primarily the classic one is the hydro dam where you're damming water up and storing it till you need it. And then the different elevations between the head and the tail race can create the energy to, to convert to electricity. Mm -hmm. And and why, in your opinion, I mean, we're hearing a lot about renewable natural gas, we're hearing a lot about hydrogen and solar and wind and energy storage. We're not necessarily hearing a lot about, you know, hydroelectric power. Is there a reason for that in your mind? Yeah, it's not sexy at all, right? It's like the least sexy <laughs> of all energy, pro, uh, any, anything you talk about. It's been around for 100 years plus, right? The technology has hardly changed. Like literally when I meet with some of the big, the big uh, um, manufacturers of large equipment for hydro dams, I literally want to poke pins in my eyes because it's so boring because it's just like, it's the same thing over and over and over. Like there's only so many ways you can build generators and exciters and like there's just so, there's only, you know, it's just not sexy. And um and so there's, you know, there's been some modifications and changes, but it's been around for 100 years. Uh, it's been the same thing. Take water energy, turn it into electrical energy. Um, you know, there's there's not that much that's that interesting about it. And um, it's just like the, the good old grandpa who's always been there sitting in the corner. And, um, yeah, it doesn't get talked about very much. It, it's It's too bad, though, because, you know, from my limited vantage point, I, I, I see where you're coming from, that it's not sexy to the public opinion, but as somebody who's technical, you look at, you know, compared to a wind or a solar or even a, a cogen plant, you have, there's all these aspects. You have, you have the dams, you have this massive structure, you have, you have this environmental impact with, you know, your, your, uh, you know, your, the different ways your, your reservoir or, and then you have, you know, the falling of water and you have the mechanical, and then there's all these did, like you have all these different design features with you know rubber dams and flashboards and you know you have all these different environmental impacts with uh, I'm, I'm going to get the name wrong but there's you know different ice impacts and you have trash racks and there's all these different things that are as an engineer uh, and somebody technical like there's so many pieces to it to unpack and then there's the electrical side and um, it's too bad it doesn't get more and it's so understandable right waterfalls there's energy there like it's so attainable. Um, I'd love to see it get a better, and I think that's probably an ongoing effort of how do we elevate the profile uh, mm. of it. Is is that part of what Manitoba Hydro does, kind of domestically, as well as try to you know elevate the the, the profile as a marketing piece to it as well, maybe? Well, absolutely, because we export almost forty percent of what we generate, right? And so we're a large exporter. I mean, we're an importer as well in some circumstances, but primarily net exporter. And um, yeah, I mean, we market clean energy, right? That is what, um, you know, the whole debate around large hydro and is it renewable and is it part of the renewable portfolio standards that various countries have or, you know, various uh, energy pools is, do they consider certain sizes of hydro renewable? Um, and so there's that, you know, that ongoing discussion. And so we, of course, want to say, you know, these are, this is renewable energy, it's clean energy. And the reality is, is um, 
I remember being in a, in a meeting with uh, Jim. I went on a trade mission with Jim Carr and some other folks from other utilities in Canada, and we were meeting with the uh, Minister of Energy in India in Delhi. And, you know, he was going on and on um, uh, about uh, all the renewables, like the solar and everything else. And his chief engineer, a woman, was sitting there with her head in her hands. And finally, I couldn't help myself. And I just said to him, you know why she's holding her head is because if you don't build enough hydro to support all these renewables, you can't run the renewables. So, like, it's <laughs> great to have these targets that are, like, you know, which is probably why I haven't been invited back to India. But, you know, it, it's just like um, it, it doesn't it, if you don't have hydro or you don't have some sort of base generation to support the renewables that are intermittent, um, you don't. You know, you, you can't do this without a base, uh, a base power source, as you guys know. And and so you absolutely and hydropower is the cleanest of all those options other than nuclear. But nobody really wants to talk about nuclear, do they? Unfortunately, that's like a taboo topic. So nobody says nuclear. But um, yeah, that's the reality of it. Now, how does it? Oh, go ahead, Matt. Well, I was just going to say, you, you mentioned the intermittency of, of, of wind and solar and, um, you know, and, and hydro being the, the backbone upon which you can build those additional um, technologies in your portfolio. Is there, you know, I think of a river and water kind of flowing continuously. Is there a, a storage or a flexibility or a dispatch ability in, in hydroelectric facilities? Well, absolutely. Like it, it, it functions like a giant battery, right? Is like you store the water in the reservoir uh, when you don't need it, and then when you do need it, you can open the open the gates and have the water run through the generating stations to generate the energy. Uh, the energy. So it's totally flexible, right? And it's um it and so when those other uh, uh the other um renewables that we have in, in our portfolios when they're not running like sun or wind or others um, if they're not running um, then you can utilize you know your uh, your hydro plants um, I mean it has mm -hmm. a ton of advantages right it's one of the only uh, types of um, uh, energy that can restart on its own power so if you have a black a blackout it's the only one that can restart itself right Every other, and that's why you need the hydro plants when you have blackouts in places. If they have too many renewables and too much intermittence, they don't have enough inertia or energy in the system to restart. Whereas hydro can always restart itself because it's got the inertia of the river or the water. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's a huge, um, a huge benefit that I think people never think of till they're in a blackout and then they can't get restarted and they're like, hmm, we didn't, you know, we didn't figure out how we would restart when we blocked out. Um, so, yeah, that's another um, significant uh, benefit. And how does it compare, Shauna, from a pricing perspective, pricing point? You know, you've got 97% hydroelectric you mentioned earlier. You have sun, you you have solar, sorry, you have uh, wind. Obviously, you need to have the water or, you know, the ability to make hydroelectric power. But, you know, how does it compare against some of the other technologies from a pricing perspective? Well, you know, it's it's really hard to compare it because you try to use a levelized cost of energy to compare different technologies, right? But it's right. really an art. It's not really a science. And, you know, it's there's so many variables and caveats, like depending on um, what time of day you're talking about, um, the cost of solar might be totally different at a particular time of day because mostly 
um, if you look at, like in Manitoba, for sake of argument, you look at our energy pattern, um, where our peaks are during the day. Um, well, we don't really peak that much in the middle of the day. You know, we peak in the morning mm. and we peak in the evening and in the day it's sort of flat. Well, when's the sun shining? Well, when it's flat. So um, then it's not worth as much, right? But on the shoulder parts where you're peaking, then it's worth more. So it depends what kind type of day, what day it is and, um, you know, what what other things are doing in the in the um in the system at that particular time, what that energy is worth. Um, but, you know, all things said and done, it's um, uh, solar and wind and hydro are pretty comparable in price, uh, depending on the situation. But, you know, if you look at various um, resources like Canada Energy Sites or the International Energy Association, like they'll you know, it's usually lo- like more large hydro is within the bandwidth of solar and um, and wind right now. Interesting. And of course, yeah, of course the um, the price. You know, we're always everyone talks about when we figure figure out this battery storage issue for the renewables, we're going to have that'll be a step change, right? And um, but right now that's not the case, so the prices are quite. Um, but it's really hard to compare. People always ask that and try to compare. And it's really, there's so many what ifs, but. Mm. Well, and you're comparing different asset lives too, right? Like you, you talked about a hundred years, you, you know, your asset life for a hydroelectric facility is much, much longer than, than wind or solar, right? Well, exactly. Yeah. That. yeah. yeah. It, it's yeah. All, you're comparing apples and oranges. At least you're in the fruit category, but it's really, really hard, right? <laughs> <laughs> Shauna, can we can we talk a little bit about the the environmental side of, of hydroelectric? I mean, you know, you you Google hydroelectric. That's kind of one of the first things that come up. There's some people that you know really understand this. Uh, there's other people that maybe that don't. Um, you know, things like uh, damaged wildlife habitat or harm water quality. Those types of things come up regularly when we're talking. When you talk to somebody about hydroelectric, can can you talk a little bit about your opinion on that? Yeah, well, I think it's quite factual that there's a, you know, there's a significant amount of environmental and socio-environmental uh, issues associated with building large hydro. That being said, I mean, how people built hydro 100 years ago or even 20 or 30 years ago is significantly different. You know, if you uh, look to the International Hydropower Association, they created a sustainability protocol that um, so if um, funders, large banks or development banks or anything are funding the development of a hydro project, they generally insist that it goes through the sustainability protocol and gets evaluated so that you're trying to mitigate or avoid or eliminate the adverse effects associated with building it. Um, and that's from the socioeconomic and from the environmental but the reality is there's still you're still changing the path of a river. You're still disrupting the environment. You're still disrupting wildlife. You're still disrupting the um, you know, a lot of the traditional pursuits of indigenous peoples in those regions. Um, mm-hmm. there's there's a price to pay. And um anybody trying to pretend there isn't is, you know, fully you know what. There's it's just like um there's baggage um uh with it for sure. Significant improvements. 
um, definitely issues. The one issue that really um, frustrates me is you, like you say, Lisa, when you Google it, they talk about the methane gas or the, you know, the GHGs off of the, well, that's a bit of a, you know, uh, a uh, myth from my perspective. If you look at the research on that, there's going to be natural um, break breakdown of the river banks. There's going to be, you know, you, you accelerate that, but I mean, it's, um, given the amount of energy produced versus that, like if you look at a chart of GHG emissions from a, a large hydro versus pretty much any other energy source, it's almost zero, right? So it, that's a bit of a thing that um, <clears throat> uh, folks who are, you know, uh, oppose large hydro, uh, they they speak to that all the time, but it's not factual as far as I'm concerned. What, what are the prospects, I guess, maybe initially uh, in, in North America and then uh, perhaps worldwide, uh, Shauna, from your vantage point, the prospects of, you know, continued uh, development of, is, is it, is it, is there opportunity for large hydro? Is it, is it some small, small hydro left? Like, is there, have we built out everything? Are we saturated? Like, what's, what's your view of the market? Well, we're definitely not saturated. Like, there's lots of capacity left in lots of places around the world um i think the issue is is the um uh the development cycle time of large hydro is you know from start to finish 12 to 14 years so you know wow. from the time you decide you're going to build it and then you plan it and you go through pre-construction and all your environmental assessments and hearings and then it's six to seven years to construct and another one or two years to commission you know, you're talking about a really long project and you're talking about billions and billions of dollars. So there's not very many companies that are up for that kind of uh, taking on that kind of risk anymore. And so usually projects like that have to be built by governments or in some sort of government partnership, right, associated with um, uh, with the development. And then there's, it's become very, very political, right, in terms of building large hydro because of the socioeconomic stuff. And so there are some countries that have huge economic potential, but they're in a political cycle or a social cycle in their country where it's like saying nuclear in Canada, right? It's like a bad word, and so you just don't do it. But there's tons of potential in the world. And in Canada, we just, in Manitoba, we just finished building a 620 megawatt plant. We just uh, um, fired up the first unit on Kiosk. Um, last week or the week before so um mm -hmm. there's also muskrat falls out east um and uh and as you know there's always lots of controversy that surrounds these projects as well um but um you know i think in it's pr primarily asia that right now where they're large hydro brazil china um and then there's you know there's projects all around the world right like i was just looking on this on the map the other day um we got Colum projects in Colombia, Argentina, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Angola, and Turkey right now on the go. So, you know, oh, there's, wow. and there's um, the other, the HVDC technology, which you need to act. I'm not an expert in that. So, but, you know, the HVDC technology that's associated with large hydro quite often that um, um, also is expanding in some of these countries is pretty exciting. And that H, I might have this wrong, Shauna, but it, that HVDC is that kind of a made in Manitoba thing? Look at you, Matt! Holy! <laughs> <God>. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh man, absolutely! It it isn't. We were one of the first uh, places in the world to have an HVDC line because we generate most of our power in the north. We convert it um, in in order for efficiency to get most of the power from the north to the south without losing, uh, you know, having too many losses on the transmission lines. We convert it to DC. We bring it down south and convert it back to AC for distribution and mm. sale. Um, and yeah, the tech, we uh, developed the technology. And actually, for a little plug for Manitoba Hydro International, we um, one of our divisions is the Power Technology Center, um, mm. which is considered the world center of HVDC technology. And um, most of the people considered the world experts in HVDC technology work in our PTC center. Wow. Huh. Very, very wow. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is pretty cool. It's a very well-known fact, Little Manitoba, but it definitely puts us on the map. Yeah, and and so that you mentioned a, a list of of projects, um, you know, kind of all over God's creation there. Um, and and what's your your group's role in the like? Do you take a is it a, a development role? Is it a construction role? Like, what what type of a role would you guys in your group play in a project like that? Uh, well, in our consulting arm, which we're we're winding down, but normally we would have been in a in a consulting um, uh, form in during construction on various different aspects. Like we um, just finished a big uh, Mount Coffee in Liberia. We just finished a huge project, being the uh, part of the um, uh, construction team and uh, the um, the. The general civil contractors, we were the oversight for the banks, uh, so all the various development banks around the world that were funding the project, we worked on their behalf to oversee the, the contract. Um, so we would do, you know, in terms of that kind of development, we would take on that kind of work. Okay, neat. So, so the projects are being done with, you know, local local contractors and, and local or relatively local, but you're, you're providing the, the know-how and the experience and making sure that the money's, you know, being spent such that the project will, will actually, you know, be built and get up and running successfully. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Are there other facilities, Shauna, that are planned for Manitoba as far as, uh, you know, new, new no, plants? That would either no? no, not right now. I mean, we always have a power resource plan and we always do work on the various options that are available and um, try and keep, you know, up to date on the uh, uh, the various basics of each um, uh, potential project. But um, as far as I know, there's nothing in the near future. Hmm. I walked to my as you were, you were talking about development cycles and um, you know how different political uh, whims can can lengthen the development cycle. I, several years ago, I, I read this book here. It's called uh, Colossus. It's the it's the story of the Hoover Dam. Um, oh, and, and okay. The, the, it's a fascinating read, and the first half is about. Um, the development like the process and, and it was a like a 20 or 30 year development and you know initiated by these farmers in southern california who were you know worried about irrigation and what and it, it was a flood control and irrigation project before it was an electricity generation the cool part of the story is that the electricity generation was the juice that actually funded the project but it this has the as the political whims in the u.s changed um you know, the project was, you know, it was on the front burner, then it was on the back burner, then it was on the front burner. And so the first half of the book is all about those politics. And then the second half of the book is 
basically this um, this biography of the construction manager of of everything that he went through because they built it like it was they were under budget and two or three years ahead of schedule, uh, which is unheard of these days. So so were many of their health and safety practices are also unheard of these days. <laughs> Um, anyways, to, to, you have to you have to read the gory details. Uh, you know, the, the book is a good read. Um, but yeah, it certainly is a, a big kind of big endeavor. Whereas, you know, when we do projects, you know, for a industrial facility behind the meter, it's like you have maybe the city to consult with, but, you know, you don't have all these external stakeholders. So what um, I'm, I'm curious, Shauna, you, you probably have a story or two to tell in that development cycle like what what's the strangest thing or what's the weirdest thing you've been confronted with you had a great story about the the, the team in india but is there another story that kind of comes to mind as you know a, a story that you like to tell about uh your years in hydroelectric well i'm still employed so matt i gotta be pretty careful here right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, um you know, I think um, I would uh, I'd speak to the thing that was uh, one of the most enlightening parts of my journey mm -hmm. around uh, hydropower development was recognizing that um, we come from this perspective that Western science and Western knowledge has all the answers. Mm -hmm. And on our TS project and our one before it was Squatum, we worked extensively and we partnered and we were the first ones in Canada to have... Um, equity partners in the construction of these projects. And so we partnered with four of the Cree nations for, for the Kiev example, um, and uh, with Wisquatum, with one of uh, Cree nation partners up in the north. Um, and we worked extensively with them on various groups that brought um, indigenous knowledge into the whole process. And so when we went to environmental hearings, we, we did what we called a two-track process. We followed all the requirements of the environmental process with the Western science and the studies and the data and everything else you need. But then we had the second track, which was our traditional knowledge track, where um, the elders and a lot of folks from those communities developed their own environmental assessment of the project and provided that knowledge. And it was quite enlightening to realize, you know, that Western science doesn't get it right a lot of the times. And, you know, it's a combination of using the best from both worlds to get the optimal solution. So for me, that was sort of the most enlightening part because I was a bit skeptical at first about it. Um, mm. But it does, um, you know, just something as simple of where you're putting an access road, like a small, there's tons of access roads when you build a big project. And you know, an elder saying, no, this is where the moose go and this is where they swim in June. So don't put the access road there. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, just simple, simple. Well, not simple things. Some aren't simple, but that kind of stuff. So that um, that was a very uh, uh, enlightening process for me as part of that development. And I, I know Lisa has a, a, a question to kind of take us in a slightly different direction, but just to unpack that, is there a, Sean, is there a word of, of wisdom or like approaching that? It sounds like you learned a lot through that process and over your career, like in terms of that uh, indigenous consultation and, and, you know, to those of us who, who don't do that a lot or, or, or may be coming into it, is there in terms of a behavior or a stance or a mindset, you know, some, some, some wisdom from you in terms of how to approach that properly? Just always be honest and tell the truth because the truth has legs and it's always the last thing standing. Mm -hmm. Just tell the truth from the beginning. 
I, I like that. The truth has legs, and it's the last standing. I'm gonna I'm gonna write that down while Lisa asks her question. We're gonna quote that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So Shauna, maybe shifting the podcast a little bit to more of kind of a, a personal question, I guess. Uh, you know, woman to woman, uh, we obviously experience some of the same challenges often uh, in the in more of a male dominated, uh, you know, sector. You've obviously managed to climb the corporate ladder very successfully. You've led multiple different positions in Manitoba Hydro. Uh, I guess what's your secret for the other women who are maybe listening out there and, and want to uh, want to be in your shoes? Oh, wow. Um, I don't know that there's any secret per se i mean just all the all the regular um all the regular things that we all know already is find mentors find champions um if you're a woman in power put your hand down and pull the other women up um i i get frustrated sometimes i see women in power and they've they've lost sight of where they were and how they got there and they they're not remembering and so remind yourself continuously if you're a woman in power to reach down and pull the other women and other disadvantaged people up with you um you know there's always there's already for in male dominated um and not that it's necessarily easy for the men in those areas to climb the ladder either but they they seem to have systems and networks that women don't have access to sometimes so um just look after each other um but uh you know part of it's luck part of it's being in the right place at the right time part of it's working your ass off oh can we swear on this podcast oh we yeah. can okay excellent <laughs> yes it's i wish fine. i'd known that earlier <laughs> and then uh, so uh you know taking on assignments other people maybe don't like to take on and you might be a little bit fearful of them but you know go jump in with both feet and take it on because um you will be, uh, you know, you'll learn things and, uh, and you'll, you know, it's, it's good for, for the development. And so that's one of the things that um, when I mentor younger women, I've often say, I know it doesn't sound very glamorous, but, you know, take it on, do it and, and see what you can learn. Mm. Um, humor, I use humor a lot to get through um, it, it uh, without being silly or being funny, Lisa, as you know, it can be pretty frustrating sometimes. And I spend a lot of time with women who get pretty discouraged. And uh, particularly in this industry, like after 37 years, I'm sad to say I haven't seen a lot of change, you know, at the leadership level of women mm. on board or women in uh, executive positions or women leading companies like I just haven't seen a significant shift in that and and that saddens me I wish I wish we were making better progress um, and I think you need to um, you need to learn how to accept disappointment and recognize that um, you know that uh, shit happens and figure it out and keep moving don't let it get you don't be discouraged like we've all you know, I've lost more jobs than I like when I've been on jobs, I've lost I've lost more jobs or didn't get awarded more jobs or find more jobs than I than I won. And so, you know, everybody's got a journey, not everybody. It's not an easy path. Right. Right. So I think that's a long winded answer. But um, I don't think there's any secret. I, I mean, for me. You know, um, I think a lot about um, I, my, I was raised by a mom, a single mom who was a feminist long before her time. She worked in a male dominated industry. So I grew up as a young girl watching my mom 
operate in this environment. Um, it gave me the skills and the confidence, you know, to uh, say, well, yeah, I can do that too. Um, and, and to, to walk that path. Um, so, you know, I, most of the credit for her in terms of my psychological, the, what's in my head to say I can keep doing this and deal with the disappointments and the, the, the bias and sometimes the things that aren't fair. Um, I, can, I can do that because she built that into me. So hmm. if your parents out there, build that into your girls and your boys. doesn't matter. Hmm. Build, that, build that into your children. It's critical. No, that's fantastic advice, Shona. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. And and maybe just one other question for you for for maybe, you know, regardless of gender, anyone who wants to enter into the hydroelectric career path, you know, is there a specific path that you would suggest people kind of follow or or what's your advice there? Well, you know, one of the neat things and Matt mentioned this earlier when he was talking about all the different components of a hydroelectric project, right, is that it is kind of neat because it takes all different, like you, you need engineers and you need accountants and you need environmentalists and you need, you know, um, like a zillion different um, types of professions and trades to, op- to build and operate a hydroelectric generating stations. And so, I mean, for me, I started with, a, you know, an undergrad degree in chemistry um, and end up being the vice president of finance and strategy, um, the, the acting VP of finance and strategy. And, and, you know, I did an MBA along the way, but nonetheless is that it's an industry where it's so, there's so much breadth that you can build yourself into, you know, you can transform yourself in all different areas. It's, it's not super linear that there's only one way to, to move. So, yeah. And, and- in my experience too, it's it's a it's a field that needs to be experienced, right? Like to really, you know, to to, to get out and I know that around here in Niagara, uh, often the 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 OPG assets will will open their doors and let people come in for tours, and you know, once you really, if you're any of those, and I'm glad you mentioned the other uh, the other skill sets and the other occupations that that have a big role in the industry. And I think all of us can get excited. I mean, as technical uh, individuals, we get more excited than others, perhaps. But to walk through and, and even even to go to the Grand Canyon and, and or to go to the the uh, Hoover Dam and, and drive across it and then walk across and just see the magnitude of it. You know, it there's something different about experiencing and seeing the water and being seeing the, the merger of creation and technology. And uh, it's a it, it, it you know you got to go out and see it. And I know that. You know, often there's big fences around it, and rightly so. But there are opportunities to go in and and to see the the technology and and to touch it. Don't touch everything, but to touch it. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's exactly right, Matt. I mean, it's quite awe-inspiring, right? Like it Mm -hmm. really is. They're engineering marvels. Some of these um, generating stations that have been built, and I've had an opportunity to see a lot of them around the world, and it is awe-inspiring. And you don't need to be a techie or engineer to stand on the tail race deck and feel the power of that water running through those generators like it's pretty cool no matter who you are or what you do for a living for sure it reminds me of uh, about 18 months ago my wife and i went to uh to las vegas for a, a long weekend and uh and in in looking back on that trip and the first part of the trip was we drove out to the hoover dam and we we did the not the tour but we just saw it and 
to this day, it's the highlight for, obviously for me, of the trip, but for my <laughs> wife as well. All of Las Vegas, that didn't matter. She also got the uh, the uh, the majesty and the wonder of, of, of these types of assets. So... Um, this has been this has been delightful, Shauna. I've I've certainly enjoyed it. Uh, I think Lisa has as well. Any any kind of closing thoughts as we uh, wind down our time together? No, thank you for having me. I I love talking about um, uh, my work and what we do, and I love talking to other professionals in the industry about it. So uh, that's great. And I think this podcast that you guys are doing is a great idea, just to get information out there. Well done. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank for- you. Thank you for being on. And is there a, are you, um, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, is there a way to do that or? Um, uh, yeah, they could just email me at S-P-A-C-H-A-L at M-H-I dot C-A. M-H-I dot C-A. All right, cool. We'll put that in the, uh, that, that's great. I appreciate you uh, having that openness and appreciate you carving out this time uh, to speak with Lisa and I. It's been uh, it's been fun, and as you said, we've sprinkled in a fair amount of humor, uh, which is uh, the way we all get through life. So, Shauna, thank you very much. Uh, My we've been, pleasure. We've been thank joined you. Thank you, Shauna Pahal of uh, Manitoba Hydro, uh, the senior managing director uh, of their international efforts, and uh, on behalf of Lisa and Mark, uh, appreciate everybody listening. And remember, the truth has legs, and it's the last thing standing. Stay safe.